Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. We all know nicotine vapes haven't been around for very long, yet their impact is monumental. Worldwide, nearly 100 million people have stopped smoking thanks to vaping, but the demonization and hysteria over safer nicotine products continue. Joining us today to discuss vaping, uh, public health war on vaping and what could be the dawn of a new era of prohibition is Jacob Greer, the author of the 2019 book, The Rediscovery of Tobacco, Smoking, Vaping, and the Creative Destruction of the Cigarette. And he's also a writer for Reason, a libertarian website and magazine. Jacob, thanks for coming back on the show. Brent, thanks for having me back on. Very excited for this conversation, though it is not a very fun topic. When we last had you on in October of 2019, it was just a couple of months after the so-called vaping-related lung disease exploded, and your book had also just been published. Let's start there. Provide our viewers with a quick snapshot of what you're trying to accomplish with the book, and what was the reaction? Yes, yeah, so it's a, a comprehensive book on the history of the regulation of smoking, essentially. Uh, and so I came into it with uh, two goals, uh, one of which was to talk about things related directly to smoking, such as smoking bans or uh, prohibitions on things like menthol cigarettes. Uh, and then to also talk about the sort of new era of harm reduction, which has opened up in recent years, where we have much safer products like snooze or vaping uh, that smokers can use to uh, get a source of nicotine that's much less harmful than smoking, uh, but that had also been demonized quite a bit by the press and politicians and anti-smoking groups. Uh, and so I wrote this book to sort of delve into the science and uh, also the cultural and political aspects of all of that to try to make a case uh, for a more liberal approach to smoking and vaping, uh, where we respect adult choice and uh, promote harm reduction to move people away from cigarettes. Why do you think it was important to delve so deeply into the history of tobacco use? Uh, well, I saw a lot of the same patterns repeating uh, in the in the war on vaping that I saw uh, with what got me into this topic in the first place back in the early 2000s, which was smoking bans. And uh, if, if you go back to the around 2003, 2004 and through the next decade, uh, there's a lot of debate about where smoking should be allowed and if we should ban smoking at all bars and restaurants and then extending that outward to patios and parks and beaches and then finally into private homes. Uh, and uh, the case for that was always exaggerated, which is not to say there's no case for it. Uh, but the science behind it uh, was, was often uh, very out of touch with what they could actually prove and you know, seizing on very minute harms and blowing them up uh, to look extreme or using dubious statistical methods to uh, promote ideas like you could reduce heart attacks by 60% in just a few months you know, by banning smoking in bars, none of which was very grounded in reality, but which all of which got a lot of press attention. And, and, and accompanying this was you know, demonization of smokers themselves. Uh, and I, I saw the same thing happening uh, going into the vaping debate, often with the same people, uh, where there was certainly a lot of room for legitimate debate about this. But then, on the other hand, uh, a lot of dubious science and uh, demonization of smoking or vapors uh, that uh, made it hard to have an honest conversation about it. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, you really nailed that in the book. And I, it's the thorny issue for vapors is the corruption of science and what appears to be the destruction of truth. I mean, it, are we just griping or is it real? Oh, I think it's very real. And, you know, there's institutional reasons for that. Uh, some of that is monetary. Obviously, there's uh, a lot of money coming in from Bloomberg philanthropies and also from the master settlement agreement that goes to fund uh, anti-smoking or anti-vaping research. Uh, and I think it's more than that, it's also just cultural. A lot of the people who dedicate their careers to working in the anti-smoking movement, whether that's in nonprofits or whether it's in academia, uh, they came up in an era when 
uh, big tobacco really was evil and extremely dishonest. You know, if you go back to the 90s and uh, recall executives from the big tobacco companies testifying in Congress that nicotine is not addictive. Uh, and that's just one example of many that you could cite for the dishonesty of tobacco companies. Uh, so they grew up in this area era of uh, all out war on big tobacco. Uh, and I, I think that made them ill suited to adapt to modern times where uh, harm reduction is a very uh, valid possibility and where the tobacco companies are not the only ones doing this, but they are making products that, uh, unlike, say, filtered cigarettes in the 50s and 60s, now actually truly are much lower risk and that you know, we could benefit public health by convincing smokers to either never take up smoking in the first place or to switch to these safer products. Well, I don't think there's just one enemy. It's, uh, it's a mix. You know, there's, there's, uh, politicians are the most obvious one. Uh, they're, ultimately, they're the ones who will be passing the laws that lead to vapor products being banned or other undesirable outcomes. Uh, there's also regulators at the FDA in particular who, uh, who may be overly restrictive. Uh, and then there's the entire, you know, very well-funded public health movement, you know, like we mentioned before with Bloomberg Philanthropies and groups like Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. Uh, and at the same time, there actually, there still is big tobacco itself. Uh, they've contributed to setting up a uh, regulatory environment in the United States where they would be the only ones who actually have the, the wherewithal and the funding to potentially get their products through this FDA process. So one reason we see so many small independent vapor companies getting put out of business right now uh, is because of the law uh, giving the FDA control over the uh, entire tobacco market, which was pushed both uh, by Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and also by Philip Boris and Altria back in the early 2000s. Jacob, I have here for the audience uh, the first article of yours that I'd like, like us to talk about, and it's bang on with the FDA. This came out in September of 2021, so right as the PMTA deadline had hit. And the article that you wrote was, the FDA is set to unintentionally push quitters back to smoking. Now, did they do that? Well, it's uh, surprisingly still uh, hard to tell. I think they, they will do that. Uh, but as we know, the FDA actually missed their own deadline that was imposed by a court to make their decisions on these vaping products. Uh, so as things currently stand, there are still a ton of uh, e-cigarettes that uh, even though the FDA was ordered to rule on their applications back in September, uh, they haven't gotten around to it yet. <laughs> and so uh, it's still a bit of an open question as to uh, which products are going to stay on the market. Uh, and, and they also have yet to act on a, a bunch of other products like those involving synthetic nicotine, which they just got authority over. Uh, so the fact is right now, uh, even though the FDA uh, was supposed to have finalized all the decisions at this point, uh, we don't know what exactly is going to remain on the market, although I'm pessimistic the way things are going right now. Uh, what looks like it's going to happen uh, is that the FDA is going to be extremely skeptical of approving any e-cigarette in uh, non-tobacco and perhaps non-mint or menthol flavors. Uh, so far, they've only given authorization to two, uh, neither of which uh, is a product that's actually used by many people. Uh, so, we, so we don't know what's going to happen with products like Juul, which are much more popular, or with uh, you know, the unlimited number of smaller uh, independent vape companies that are out there. Uh, so, but obviously, the predicted effect of this is that if you take away the e-cigarettes that lots of adults are using to keep them off of smoking, and if you pull e-cigarette or users and vapors, they tell you overwhelmingly that uh, tobacco flavors are not what they want. They actually want these fruitier, sweeter flavors. So you take those off the market, then one, or two, one of two things is gonna happen. One, uh, they may go back to smoking uh, if they don't find the other vaping products satisfactory. Uh, or two, you may just see a, a really big black market in these products uh, where then the good thing is people will be able to get them still. 
but the downside is we would have all the problems with illicit markets and the potential crackdowns that uh, we'll talk about soon, I think. Yeah, that's well, we'll get there in one second, because that's the bleak part yeah. of this whole story. Um, when it comes to FDA, I mean, have they been letting the public down as well as the vaping industry? Well, I think the, the public is probably on their side because most of the public you know, doesn't smoke and doesn't vape. You know, we've got about 34 million smokers in the United States, about maybe a little more than 10 million people who vape. Uh, so it is a not a niche interest, but it's certainly a minority interest. Uh, and so I think they're responding to public pressure, uh, which is, you know, very anti-smoking and then also bought into a very alarmist uh, story about youth vaping. Uh, so, no, I'd say they're actually doing what the public wants in some way, but that what the public wants is very misinformed in this case and uh, will be very bad for the lives of smokers. So you've been basically warning that this whole thing is moving towards a very dark area, and that would be a new prohibition uh, on nicotine, basically, right? It's not just vaping products. Yeah, essentially. And it's, it's not going to happen all at once. And that's, that's how we tend to think about prohibition or the drug war. We think about you know, the, the 18th Amendment passing and the Volstead Act, and suddenly it's illegal to sell alcohol throughout the United States. And you know, we think of the Controlled Substances Act when it comes to other illicit drugs uh, and how that creates an, an entire era of prohibition. And with, with nicotine and tobacco, it's probably not going to happen like that. Maybe it will someday. Uh, but we're not really looking uh, at Congress passing a law banning all, all tobacco and nicotine across the board all at once. Uh, but we, what we are going to see is just kind of a snowball of regulations and, you know, product standards uh, coming out on what dictating what people can sell. Uh, and if you have enough of those, then you eventually reach a tipping point where you have created prohibition, whether you intended to or not. Uh, and so I think that's where we're headed uh, with a lot of tobacco and nicotine products, you know, with, uh, with combustible tobacco that the most likely outcome would be a ban on menthol cigarettes. Uh, which are used by, I believe, around 10 million smokers right now. So it's a really big market. And uh, according to a recent survey, about 70% of smokers who consume menthol uh, say that if the if a ban passed, they would try to obtain them from illicit sources. Uh, and then with vaping, uh, again, there will, probably, there will probably always be some vapor products allowed on the market, but it might not be ones that smokers actually want or that vapors actually want. Uh, and so again, uh, it's not that hard to either import these things from, from China or to create them, create them here in the United States with nicotine, liquid, and flavors. These things are not that hard to obtain. Uh, so we'll probably see an illicit market in those as well, uh, which might and, uh, you know, then provoke a police response. So obviously, if there is a black market and you know, vapors are kind of forced to participate in it, then that opens up to a whole host of potential criminal uh, charges. And let me uh, show us show the audience here. This was a big thing. I'm sure most of our audience has heard about this, but another teen vaping Another vaping teenager faces violent police enforcement, and this was in Atlanta. And let's just watch this video. Developing this morning, a family wants answers after an incident caught on camera and a policy on the Beltline police say was broken. Here's CBS 46's Sierra Cummings. The family is frustrated after Atlanta police released the teen's name as he's a minor, but not the officer's name. This teen says he is traumatized after what happened on Thursday, and now he's not sure if he ever wants to come back to the skate park again. It was scrolling social media. The family of Terry and Forston saw the video of the teen's tasing at the historic Fourth Ward Park, posted to Atlanta uncensored. 
Atlanta police told us they are reviewing the video they said is part of the encounter. He wasn't ready for that. That really put him in a situation to that he was never supposed to experience at his age. Cheyenne Thomas picked up her nephew today after he spent Thursday in jail. I really can't go to sleep right now because just because of that. The 17 year old skateboarder was charged with disorderly conduct. However, his lawyer argues the only conduct of concern should be the officers. I was just chilling. I just hit a vape at the park. Then she came up to me aggressive. APD cites smoking rules at the park, saying in his statement, the officer advised him of the law that he could not vape, but he walked away and continued, adding after trying to issue a citation, the teen would not comply, resisted, then was tased. Forston says there was no resisting. Family feels this was an excessive encounter. I looked at the video. He never once charged at her. He never once approached her. She was scared because he's a big black dude. I'm 17 years old. It shouldn't have never went that far. The incident is still under investigation and the family plans to take legal action. I think we'll probably see more of this. And uh, this is the problem when you, you know, criminalize behavior or criminalize goods, uh, especially things that are consensual, like smoking or vaping. Uh, is then uh, you, you sort of invite, unfortunately, this type of uh, police abuse. And we've seen that with the drug war, uh, certainly. And I, th I think we'll see more of it uh, as we start to uh, bring tobacco into this realm of illicit markets. Uh, and this, this wasn't isolated, by the way. There were two more very similar incidents uh, that happened on the Ocean City Boardwalk, I believe it was last year. Uh, two more cases where teenagers allegedly violated a, a ban on vaping outdoors. Uh, police got involved, and it ended with... Uh, teenagers being tased or arrested. Uh, so it's, it's regrettably not that uncommon. Uh, it's not common, but it is something that happens. And I, and I think when we uh, start criminalizing sales of tobacco or nicotine, uh, we need to be prepared uh, for how that's going to be enforced. Yeah, we're just not learning the lessons of the drug war. And, you know, none of, none of this is rising to the level of what was, has been perpetrated in the war on drugs so far. But uh, I think if you paid attention to how the war on drugs led to police abuses and to moral panics, uh, then it's hard not to see parallels with what's happening with nicotine and tobacco right now, uh, especially with the way authorities treat people, uh, whether they're minors or adults, uh, who use these products. Now, you write uh, in one of your reason columns um, connecting a very major issue that happened that kind of sparked a lot of awareness for the Black Lives Matter movement. Why don't you explain that for us? I believe you're referring to uh, the death of Eric Garner right now. Yeah, so, so Eric Garner was, uh, as most of you probably know, uh, you know, killed by a New York police officer uh, in an incident uh, that began with him allegedly selling loose cigarettes. Uh, and Lucy's, as they're called, are uh, basically a way that people sell cigarettes uh, to basically do a lower price because you're not allowed to sell them outside of packs of 20 and uh, taxes are extremely high in New York City uh, on, on cigarettes. And when I talk to people in uh, the anti-smoking movement or public health about this, you know, they, they try to separate these two issues and they say, well, this, this wasn't about the, uh, the tax rates in New York or laws about smoking. This was uh, just police brutality and that's a separate issue. Uh, but I don't think you can do that. Uh, the reality is we have to deal with the police we have. And in the United States, uh, we have uh, increasing awareness that our police enforcement is, can be violent and abusive. And so when we start criminalizing sales of products like cigarettes or flavored vaping devices, uh, police will eventually get involved because states do want the tax revenue that they're missing out on from these illicit sales. 
And uh, these are the types of things that will arise from it tragically. And if, if not uh, police abuses, then also just standard arrest and incarceration, which are in themselves very bad. In terms of the black market, you you wrote about this. We've seen some of this in Canada too as well. But I mean, really organized crime is getting involved. Yeah, on a massive level. And if you, if you talk to uh, people who've been involved with this, you know, they see it just uh, in differential tax rates in the United States. You know, there's organized crime involved in bringing cigarettes from outside of New York and from places like Virginia with a much lower tax rate. Uh, I'd also recommend everybody check out a uh, report in Vice magazine recently uh, on tobacco in Great Britain and the steps that uh, people are going through to, to evade these tax laws, not even a ban, just the tax laws, are, are remarkable and reminiscent of what people do to smuggle drugs. There's, you know, stories of people uh, in the back rooms of convenience stations where they push things through the floor or through hidden doorways uh, so that they're out of view when, uh, you know, enforcement comes in, but they're, but they're there and it's a massive black market. We see it in Australia right now, which is extremely restrictive on vaping. Uh, should be one of the hardest countries in the world based on their laws uh, to obtain e-cigarettes. And yet people are just selling them on Uber and on social media apps. Uh, and they're an island country. <laughs> like They have every advantage in the world. Uh, we saw it recently uh, in Bhutan, which has famously been one of the uh, heralded countries for banning the sale of cigarettes. And uh, that just created a black market. And finally, during the uh, COVID epidemic, they repealed their their prohibition on this because they acknowledged that there was a huge cross-border trade. And uh, finally, the pandemic made them uh, decide that having this cross-border trade was worse than having cigarettes, and so they repealed it. Uh, so it, there's a lot of overestimation, I think, uh, in the public health world of uh, that if you pass a, a law against some of these products, whether it's smoking or vaping, the compliance is going to be easy because they're used to standard regulations. You know, They're used to saying, well, if we pass this law, uh, a company like R.J. Reynolds or Altria, uh, who's a huge company that's legible that they can watch, uh, is going to comply. And, they, and they're right about that. They, those companies probably will comply. But what you are doing is then creating uh, all these incentives to just smuggle things in from overseas uh, where you can't really control things. You can't control the cigarette trade in uh, Belarus to China uh, when those start coming in the United States. Uh, you can't control the same thing with vapes. Uh, and you might even see you know, small you know, hand-produced operations. Tobacco is a plant. Uh, it's not that hard to grow. It's not that hard to roll. So yes, it won't be as efficient as a big tobacco in their contemporary rolling machines. But I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing, you know, small operations pop up to create, you know, handmade menthol cigarettes or even standard cigarettes. Here's an article uh, from Reason that you wrote back in March of this year. Who will be the first person to go to prison for selling flavored tobacco or e-cigarettes? And it's happening. Yeah, we. Uh, it may have already happened because you know a lot of these. Cases never even really get reported. So we don't, we don't know if it's happened yet. Uh, but if it hasn't, it's probably going to happen soon. And I could say the case probably involves um, a New Hampshire man who was arrested in Massachusetts for bringing in uh, cigarettes, uh, flavored e-cigarettes uh, and cannabis. Uh, and I, I forget the exact numbers, but the authorities seized a lot, a lot of cash. They seized a, a cargo van uh, <laughs> and a whole lot of products. He's facing up to five years in prison now. Uh, and that's a direct result of Massachusetts policies that made it basically impossible uh, to buy flavored vaping devices uh, legally. So they end up being supplied by guys like this. And then when the police crack down, uh, it's only a matter of time before you know, someone like him is sentenced to prison. And it's probably going to happen. Just it was a couple of months after you were first on the show and we had um, 
Ethan Nadelman on. And if there's one person in the world that you could say is responsible for, you know, winning the war on drugs, if not beating it down, it is, uh, it is uh, Mr. Nadelman. And, you know, he said something very, very strong. He said there, there is going to be people going to prison uh, over nicotine. And that was two years ago. And here we are sitting here with those same levels of warning uh, that you're providing. I can't help but think that this is really not going in the right direction. Yeah, completely agreed. And we'll we'll only see more of it as uh, FDA restrictions come into place on a national level, or as more states and cities pass these types of flavor bans. So why do you think why do you think they don't accept harm reduction when it comes to this particular execution? I mean, most public health seem to think that harm reduction is okay for needle exchange, sex ed, you know, condoms, that kind of thing. Even cannabis, the legalization of cannabis is made with a harm reduction argument, yet you just can't seem to be allowed to be making it uh, when it comes to tobacco. Yeah, and harm reduction is always an uphill battle, and we're seeing it succeed in a lot of places. Uh, I think part of it is that tobacco has just been so demonized uh, for the past couple decades, or more than a couple decades, but it's, it's been demonized and stigmatized uh, so that no one can see it as possibly good. They, you know, they, uh, they view pe- anyone who smokes as just an addict who has no free will in this situation. Uh, and, and they just have a lot of skepticism of anything that even looks like smoking. So regardless of what the science says on vaping, uh, there's a lot of people who will look at that and say, well, you put it in your mouth and it provides nicotine and it produces this cloud. <laughs> so it must be just as bad as smoking, if not worse. And so we see that perception, you know, in polling. You know, a lot of Americans think that e-cigarettes are as bad, if not worse, than cigarettes, which is just wildly out of touch with with what almost anyone scientist who's researched this would say. Uh, so that's part of the challenge. But I, I think another thing worth bringing up, though, is that you know historically, when you when you look at fights for drug legalization or decriminalization, you know, those have mostly come from the left. Uh, it was it was Democrats, it was people on the left who were pushing to legalize cannabis, for example, or like where I live in Oregon to decriminalize uh, pretty much all drugs or uh, allow therapeutic psilocybin. Uh, Whereas tobacco, you know, the defenders of tobacco have traditionally been on the right. So people on the left are inherently skeptical of that. Uh, And I I think they're just kind of biased and just taking a mental shortcut of thinking, you know, tobacco is always bad. It's a right-wing issue. We're on the left. We're against it. Uh, Instead of actually looking at uh, the science that's coming out on the potential of harm reduction, uh, to massively reduce both the, the harms of tobacco use and the number of people who smoke. What do you make of the CDC's response and actions that they took around the so-called vaping-related lung illness, Valley? Yeah, well, I think it was completely inept. And uh, I, I faced a difficult choice at the same time because you know, this, the, uh, the so-called Evilly epidemic was, came, was at its peak right when I had to decide whether to hit publish on my book. <laughs> and my book was basically making the case, you know, in a large part, that vaping was a safer alternative to smoking. And so for that to be coming out at a time when there was all these news stories about how vaping is producing an epidemic that's killing people, uh, I had to be pretty confident of knowing what was actually happening here to, to put my reputation on the line and publish the book when I did. Uh, but it came out in September. And by that time, it seemed uh, pretty obvious that nicotine vaping was probably not even involved at all in this and that the actual cause of these lung injuries was mostly illicit uh, cannabis vapor products and there were lots of reasons to think this the main one being that you know vitamin e acetate uh, was identified as the thickener that that was causing a lot of these lung injuries Uh, it was traced back by the magazine leafly uh, to the to the uh, cartridge market for cannabis products 
Uh, so this is all pretty well known, and it wouldn't make sense to use a thickener like this with nicotine. Just the chemistry of it, it would provide no benefit whatsoever. Uh, so it was pretty obvious what was happening here. Uh, but uh, the CDC was just way behind uh, just about everyone on acknowledging that it was coming from cannabis. Uh, and, and I think they, they viewed it as an opportunity to you know, delegitimize vaping, which they, they were already concerned about. Uh, and so it was just pure political opportunism, uh, maybe not in the early days. In the early days, nobody knew what was happening. But you know, by late summer and into the fall of that year, it was certainly obvious uh, what the true cause was. And they did a great disservice to the country uh, by trying to blame it on nicotine vaping, because it, it did create a durable increase in misperceptions of relative harm. And, and after that, you know, because of the CDC, because of the media, because of various nonprofit groups, uh, American perceptions of vaping uh, now see it as much more dangerous than it is, especially relative to cigarettes. And so I think they set back the movement to take people, to, to encourage people to give up smoking and try a much safer alternative instead. Let me ask you uh, a bit about Reason, uh, yeah. the magazine and website. They're a libertarian site. I would imagine most of their audience are liberty-focused. What's been the reaction uh, to your stories that you've been writing to that audience? It, it feels like you have to, you're doing a little bit of educating. Uh, is that needed, and is that why? And are you getting good feedback? Uh, well, I'll say up front, I don't read the comments, so, uh, <laughs> so I don't know for sure. I think that's generally a good policy. Uh, my impression is that Reason readers uh, view, view my articles on this topic fairly favorably. I mean, they're, they are a very libertarian bunch overall, and uh, so they, they don't really suffer from that bias of viewing tobacco as just a right-wing issue that they don't want to touch. Uh, so I, I really haven't gotten much pushback uh, from Reason readers uh, when, when I write about these issues. So, you know, they're, as libertarians, they're, they're generally in favor of you know, people doing much harmful things than vaping. So uh, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a difficult case to make to them. Although, of course, it's always great to, like you said, provide that education because it, it is an issue that you know, not everyone necessarily knows anything about. So you know, it is great to produce that background. Uh, I will say from experience, I also write about some of these issues surrounding smoking and vaping for Slate. Uh, and Slate is a much more you know, left-leaning progressive publication. And uh, I got a lot of angry responses when I write for them. Uh, so uh, you can definitely tell where the where the audience is more receptive and where they're not. But where are the allies? Uh, so this is complicated. And this is one of the things that frustrates me uh, writing about these issues, because, you know, I do come at come at it from uh, in not the typical background of public health. You know, I'm a, I'm a journalist for one and I'm a libertarian journalist for two. And I'm also someone who enjoys smoking myself. Uh, I'm not a frequent smoker, but I like to have an occasional cigar sometimes. And that that definitely puts me on the outs uh, with a lot of people in public health. Uh, so our allies obviously are, one, anyone with sort of naturally uh, liberal or libertarian inclination to defend the rights of consenting adults to make their own decisions uh, on anything, especially including drug use, uh, which, uh, you know, not to use that pejoratively, but that's what we do when we smoke or vape. Uh, and then, you know, anyone who's for, you know, a limited government approach on this. And then on the left, it's more complicated. There are, there are people... Like you said, Ethan Nadelman, who is absolutely fantastic, who comes at this of a background of opposing the drug war and who sees the parallels that are happening right now and, and is warning about them. Uh, but there, there's, I, I distinguish in the, in the harm reduction community between people who are uh, liberal and illiberal harm reductionist. And there's a lot of people who, who do see the value uh, of trying to convince smokers to, to switch to safer alternatives, 
but who don't just want to nudge them that way, but they, they want to shove smokers in that direction. And, and so a lot of the people who, who I think are in academia particularly uh, take this approach where they not only want to just transition people to vaping, uh, but they, you know, they want to prohibit smoking in as many ways as they can, whether that's menthol or whether it's requiring you know, complete elimination or near elimination of nicotine and combustible tobacco, or even just all out prohibition, which you do see some people advocate. Uh, and so with them, you know, even though they are sort of for harm reduction in that sense, uh, I think they, uh, they make a mistake in, in terms of pushing for these prohibitionist policies and underestimating how difficult it's going to be to actually implement them without all these negative unintended consequences. Let me ask you, that, and this is going to be um, difficult to kind of tease out, I think, in a question, but it comes down to public health in the U.S. and Canada. They both really hang their hat on not just the teen vaping, but young person vaping, which means people who are of majority, who, have, who are of age, <laughs> deciding they might want to vape. And that is like, oh, that's next to teen vaping as being totally horrible. It's enough to destroy the industry if a 22-year-old decides on their own, who's never smoked before, to pick up a recreational you know, nicotine habit through a vaping device. They see that just as bad as a 13-year-old vaping. Right. And, and we've seen that with uh, some of the proposed laws that have come out to uh, basically just set an age cutoff. Uh, or a year cutoff, I should say, where you know anyone born after the year 2000, for example, uh, will never be allowed to purchase tobacco products, and uh, you know that that to me is just upsetting to the idea that adults should be able to make their own decisions. And it, you know, I had the same experience. I had never touched tobacco in any form until I I want to say I was 22 or 23, and uh, then a friend introduced me to a cigar, and I loved it. And so the idea that the state should be prohibiting me from making that decision when I was 22, uh, I think is absurd and it's an affront to liberty. Um, but yes, what you say is correct. I mean, they, that, and that does come down to this sort of puritanical attitude that absolutely no one should be using nicotine, uh, which, which I think is just out of touch with the facts about how nicotine is available now. You know, that maybe that attitude made sense when the only way to get nicotine was, to, or the predominant way to get it, was to smoke a cigarette. Because yes, smoking cigarettes is terrible. It is incredibly deadly. You can talk to you know millions of adult smokers who regret ever starting whatever age they, they began. Uh, but the fact of the matter now is that you know in a country where people consume alcohol really freely, where we're legalizing cannabis, uh, the idea of being able to vape nicotine or use snus uh, should not be very alarming. Shouldn't be sent to prison for it either. Well, you certainly shouldn't be sent to prison for it. Yeah. <laughs>